And now, the Blaze Radio Network presents 40 Acres and a Fool. Here's your host, Cam Edwards. Greetings from the near frontier. Thank you for tuning in to another edition of 40 Acres and a Fool, a special edition of 40 Acres and a Fool. It is another past tense current events and uh, one more look at one more chapter from the 1955 Max Eastman book, Reflections on the Failures of Socialism. Now, Max Eastman, a former socialist himself when he wrote this book, uh, uh, lays out, um, again, some of the inherent problems with socialism, but also uh, looks towards a different way. And in the fourth chapter of this book, Replacement for the Dream We Lost, it's interesting. He's got a lot of stuff that I agree with. I completely disagree with how he ends this chapter. I suspect you will too. But uh, but again, you know, there's no reason to throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? When you're reading old books, you will oftentimes run across something that just is not true and has not been borne out by history, has not been borne out by the facts. You know this to be the case. It doesn't mean that everything has to be discarded. Nobody gets it right 100% of the time. And, uh, and 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 that includes political prognosticators as well. Just because somebody got something wrong, it doesn't mean they don't have something to offer us. Uh, and Max Eastman got far more right than he got wrong, including, I think, why socialism has become certainly in in, in you know uh, 2019 almost the the religion now of the of the secular left. And he says it was natural. That idealistic people who had ceased to believe in heaven should think up some bright hope for humanity on earth. That, I think, more than any objection to capitalism, accounts for the spread of the socialist dream, especially in Anglo-Saxon countries. Now, Max Eastman notes that uh, this dream of heaven on earth, in, in order to believe in it, you have to disbelieve the slow, actually not even all that slow, the steady real progress towards prosperity that we have made under capitalism. He notes that the uh, 19th century, capitalism uh, raised the real wage of the British worker 400%. He says the average real wage of the American worker rose between 1840 and 1951 from 18 to 86 cents an hour. He says a good ferry could hardly have worked faster. Of course, he says, it wasn't capitalism that did this. An abstract noun can't do anything. It was just the spontaneous way of producing wealth with elaborate machinery and a high division of labor. The word capitalism was invented by socialists for the express purpose of discrediting this natural behavior. And apart from the contrast with their dream, it has no precise application. I find it fascinating, by the way, that Max Eastman talks about the left creating a term like capitalism uh, for their own purposes, Kind of like what they've done with, uh, quote-unquote, assault weapons. He says, uh, we should invite down to brass tacks anyone who tells us capitalism is doomed. We hear a lot of that today. Uh, A lot of talk about late-stage capitalism. He says, that sonorous maxim is an intellectual scarecrow set up by socialists to frighten those who have wakened from their dream and are trying to find the way home to reality. It is just the same dream turned inside out says Max Eastman. He writes, even George Orwell, who depicted so brilliantly the horrors of what he called oligarchical collectivism, was deceived by this maneuver of capitalism is doomed. He was on the road home, Max Eastman writes, but found these solemn words in his mouth. Capitalism itself has manifestly no future. 
Meaningless words, says Max Eastman. And so he turned back and died gazing at the dream, now mournfully dubious on the far horizon, that some other kind of collectivism, besides oligarchal, might come to be. I cannot see any other hopeful objective, was the extent of his enthusiasm for the cause. I am reminded of... uh, some of the interactions I've had with the the uh, I think the, the official socialist party on uh, Twitter, um, a group of uh, individuals who believe that uh, uh, real socialism has never been tried, and, uh, and therefore all of the failures of collectivism that we have seen uh, from the uh, Paris Commune in the uh, 19th century up until the uh, you know uh, totalitarian dystopian government that is China today, all of those failures of collectivism have uh, mean nothing. Um, because they weren't real socialism. Now, I hear that, and I think, wow, I mean, if all of these people who've called themselves socialists have, have failed at creating real socialism, maybe that alone should tell you something, right? But uh, the socialists, uh, at least the, some of those in the uh, the real socialist party, they don't see it that way, right? They're going to be the bright, shining minds that uh, somehow get it right where all who have come before them have failed, now, in the 1950s, when Max Eastman was writing this book, the, um, the, the enthusiasm for socialism that we saw uh, around the world in the 1930s during the Great Depression, uh, including here in the United States, a lot of that had faded away. Uh, not only did you have the rise of McCarthyism and the start of the Cold War, uh, but it was pretty clear by the mid-1950s that you couldn't simply invent a, a whole new society. You could not simply create heaven on earth, even if you really, really wanted to. Like, it just didn't work that way. So by the 1950s, what we were seeing was um, a call for uh, a gradual socialism. Just, uh, you know, a little bit at a time, one bite at a time. And by going slowly, uh, then, you know, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get it right. We'll, we'll have less of an opportunity to, uh, to really screw things up. Even by the 1950s, uh, Max Eastman wrote, this idea was coming out of disfavor. Uh, He uh, uh, says that uh, with uh, the zeal for a gradual approach to socialism is uh, in sad decline. The, quote, wonderful merits of gradualness are no longer so obvious. One of the reasons why I like Max Eastman is because he does recognize that it's almost human nature uh, to want to dream of a better society, to want to, 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 want to improve society. And Max Eastman understands that. He says, we have a right to dream. We have a right to make a big try. Only our dream must not be inconsistent with present measures that we can see in a shorter perspective are good. We must make sure that while we think we are marshalling mankind for a leap from the kingdom of necessity into the kingdom of freedom, we are not actually leading him down the old, well-paved road to serfdom. In short, he writes, if we're going to dream, let's dream in the right direction. I love that, that sentence. If we're going to dream, let's dream in the right direction. Let's not dream uh, these old, tired collectivist policies that, uh, that inevitably fail. And not only that, but inevitably lead to misery. Look at what's going on in, in Venezuela right now. Uh, you know, the, uh, the, the, uh, hopefully this uh, concludes with a peaceful transfer. Well, 
the peaceful transfer of power is actually out, but hopefully this does not lead to, uh, to to widespread civil war in Venezuela. But you know, the the lofty dreams of Hugo Chavez and uh, Nicolas Maduro have resulted in a uh, nightmare for millions of Venezuelans. Just an absolute nightmare. If we're going to dream, let's dream in the right direction. Taking human nature as it is, he writes, and accepting the indubitable necessity of private property and a competitive market if men are to be free, what should be the leading feature of a fair and true society? He says, um, we shall have to creep back somewhat into our belligerent past and confess that one of our most triumphed over opponents was right. He says, indeed, I do not know any argument in opposition written during the high tide of socialist propaganda more precisely right than Hilaire Belloc's The Servile State, which is a book, by the way, that I have not read. And, and see, this is, how, this is how you fall down the rabbit hole of old books. You read an old book, and then in the context of reading or in the course of reading an old book, you hear about another old book, and then you decide, oh, I got to read that one too, and uh, and so on and so forth. I'm not kidding. That's probably how I've learned about 75, 80% of the books that I've read over the past five or six years. I learn about them in another book. So, Hilaire Belloc's The uh, Servile State. Max Eastman says his prophecies have an accuracy that seems almost uncanny when you reflect that they were published in 1912, so long before two world wars reminded us what men are really made of. He asserts categorically, as though he had lived through it, that at its first inception, all collectivist reform is necessarily deflected and evolves. In the place of what it had intended, a new thing, a society wherein the owners remain few and wherein the proletarian mass accepts a security at the expense of servitude. The capitalist state, he says, breeds a collectivist theory which in action produces something entirely different from collectivism. The servile state. I, I kind of want to read this book now, don't you? But this is this is where we get kind of into the esoteric again. Uh, I think it was in the last uh, podcast we talked about the distributive state. This was a, uh, uh, a theory that Max Eastman had mentioned. He brings it up again. Uh, Belloc had, had said that the, the distributive state was the uh, the antidote. It was the it was the other way. Uh, that, that was not collectivism. Capitalism, remember, uh, according to uh, Hilaire Bellox, uh, was going to lead to collectivism, which in action was going to lead to the servile state. Uh, capitalism could not, could not stay, according to uh, Belloc. But what could develop um, as, a, uh, as the next step after capitalism uh, would be this uh, distributive state. What, what, what would that look like? Well, Belloc said... Um, the wider distribution of property until that institution shall become the mark of the whole state and until free citizens are normally found to be possessors of land or capital or both. Max Eastman says there is a radical ideal here. It it is radical. Uh, And a crisp and simple logic that should give light if their eyes can still stand it to those semi-ex-socialists now blindly groping their way out of the maze of Marxian theory and emotion. Eastman says, I can add nothing to it except my customary reminder that the basic error in the whole century-long blunder has been a crude and foolish conception or no conception of human nature. 
The socialist idea was dreamed up by intellectual and radical-minded people who constitute a very small and not typical section of the human race. Do you agree with that, by the way? I, 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 I tend to agree with that. Eastman says you might almost describe the socialist movement as an effort of the intelligentsia to put over their tastes and interests upon the masses of mankind. Eastman says, I remember how when I traveled in Russia in 1922, long before I had waked or knew I was waking from the socialist dream, a certain thought kept intruding itself into my mind. Now, again, this is, this is you know, what, four years after the uh, revolution, right? 1922. Uh, Lenin's still alive. The, uh, I, I think in 1922, we're not even before the, uh, the new economic plan where they kind of shifted away from quote unquote pure communism. They were still experimenting with, with pure communism in the Soviet Union in 1922. And Eastman says, as he was walking through the Soviet Union, he said, uh, these millions of poor peasants whose fate so wrings the heart of Lenin have only two major joy giving interests outside their bodies in their homes the market, and the church. And Lenin, devoting his life selflessly to their happiness, has no program but to deprive them of these two institutions. That is not quite the way to go about the business of making other people happy. No, it is not. And again, um, that same mentality, I, I think we see, uh, not just among you know communist dictators like uh, Vladimir Lenin, but but even among uh, those proponents of uh, democratic socialism today, right? We're going to make your life better. You guys, your life's going to be wonderful, but we're going to take away those things that you actually do love, those things that uh, that you hold valuable, and we're going to replace them uh, with uh, mechanisms of the state. Max Eastman says we socialists were, I think, profoundly wrong to ignore the depth and generality of the drive towards property and therefore the exchange of property in man. Well, Whitman, he says, was profoundly wrong when he said in his famous hymn of praise to the animals, no one is demented with the mania of owning things. Owning things, Eastman writes, is not a mania, but a robust instinct extending far and wide in the animal kingdom. Even the birds stake out with their songs an area that belongs to them, attacking fiercely any intruder upon it. Less lyrical beasts are noticed by depositing distinctive odors on the boundaries of their domain. People who keep watchdogs can hardly deny the range and ferocity of the proprietary instinct. It was fully developed even among the nomads with their tents of different sizes. For a settled and civilized man, there can never be a paradise, I fear, or even a sane and peaceful habitat where this deep wish is unsatisfied. It has been neglected in utopias because their authors were guided rather by the Christian evangel of sainthood than by a study of the needs of average men. Now, we can see that Eastman is on to something here, and I guess Belloc was on to something, too, uh, because just look at the, you know, the biggest communist society today, right, is communist China, which is not the, uh, the, the communism of the Soviet Union. You know, when the Soviet Union and the uh, Eastern Bloc fell in the early 1990s, China figured, I, I think China figured out, I'm very much simplifying this, but China figured out a way to maintain uh, control over the people while allowing them the semblance uh, and maybe even some of the trappings of individual freedom. So you can have private industry in China, but it's going to be state-directed. You can buy stuff 
in China. You can you can you can buy you know uh, all kinds of Western goods in China, but they're the ones that are allowed to be sold. You uh, you, you can you can get a uh, you know a Gucci purse, but you can't search Tiananmen Square on your internet search engine in China. They allow for the freedom of the unimportant things, while restricting the freedom uh, of the important things. So uh, yes, you can still get your 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 property in communist China, right? You can buy your stuff, um, but what you can't buy, and and again, they've they've made that sort of concession in order to maintain real power where it counts. But in a distrib- distributive society, uh, Max Eastman says, we're not just talking about the ability to buy a purse or the ability to buy a car, right? Land and capital, a place to call your own, money that uh, can be used to, uh, to, to, to grow a business. He says, it's not easy in America where mass production has crowded people into vast industrial cities to imagine each citizen as a landed proprietor. The dream, he writes, is easier in Switzerland where factories are scattered throughout the country and average industrial workers quite normally own a home and a plot of ground. But Eastman says there is plenty of land here, and good reason, if only in the atom bomb, for scattering factories throughout the country. I see no reason why this more enchanting aspect of the distributive state should be ultimately and forever attainable, unattainable, and that free American citizens should normally be found possessors of capital, or property in the means of production seems to me not only possible, but, he says, granted two conditions are met in the long run, probable. So what were those two conditions that had to be met in order for the bulk of Americans to have property and capital? Max Eastman says, one of the conditions is that the idea of collective ownership and all the distortions of fact which it produced in the minds of democratic idealists be heartily abandoned. Most vicious of those distortions is a belief that capitalism imposes an increasing misery upon the working class. It is not enough to recognize, as all now do, that this Marxian prediction, which rested on nothing but Hegelian dialectic, was false. We must recognize that the extreme opposite is true. In other words, capitalism does not impose an increasing misery upon the working class, but, 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 but takes the working class and rise, raises them up out of misery. Max Eastman says it is only the habit of comparing reality with perfection itself uh, of, of with what is possible, a, a habit proper to juveniles and fanatics that blinds us to the fact that capitalism has worked. Whether or not it is true, as von Mises asserts, that capitalism deproletarianizes all strata of society, it is at least true that it makes possible their deproletarianization Deproletarianization, by the way, say that five times fast. So Max Eastman's, you know, again, one thing we should be able to do, get rid of that idea of collectivism, and we can all have, I mean, what he's describing here is almost a nation of 40-acre fools, right? A, a, a nation where, sure, people can live in big cities if they want to, but, but you don't have to, to make a living. Small towns are viable. Rural areas are viable. Not only are they viable, but they are actually sought after. I like that idea. I really want it to be true. Um, He follows this up, and this is where he loses me. So right along with the the end of collectivism, uh, he says 
that uh, no plans for even a slightly better society than what we have now will be realized unless the rise in wealth production is matched in the uh, by a decline in the production of people. Yeah. Got to have fewer people, he says. More goods and fewer people is the slogan I should like to see carried at the end of humanity's march into the future. Uh, uh, well, I, you know, I, there. look... Uh, Max Eastman is going to get his wish because uh, you know population uh, is going to decline here, uh, not just in the United States but uh, globally. What they say in like the next hundred years or so, right? Uh, as it turns out, there is something about prosperity that leads to, or goes hand in hand anyway, with um, fewer people being born. And and you look at a lot of Western societies, a lot of first world nations, and the replacement rate. I mean, we're not even hitting the, you know, the fertility rate is not even hitting the replacement rate. So we are losing people. Now, one of the things that Max Eastman doesn't talk about is what happens when you have fewer people in a state that uh, relies on an ever-increasing tax base to pay for government programs. And we're, a lot of countries are going to be learning how to deal with this. We're going to be learning how to deal with this. Uh, you know, the, the, the boomers, we've got a huge generation of millennials, but millennials aren't having kids. So even if this gets pushed down the road 40, 50 years, uh, we're going to be dealing with what they're dealing with in uh, Japan and Italy uh, here in the United States, where the you know, child replacement rate is just kind of falling off of a cliff here. And we can look at what other countries are doing right now. I just mentioned a couple of them, Italy and Japan, where the uh, problem is rather acute. And um, yeah, you've got, you know, more goods and and fewer people. Um, That has not necessarily led to a uh, a distributive society where uh, everybody has plenty of, uh, of capital and plenty of property. But I, I do wonder if, you know, if there's something to be, if there's something to be mined uh, out of the idea of the distributive state, which is not anti-capitalist, uh, but, but think of it as um, uh, a, a, a capitalism that is uh, more focused on um, each individual, uh, again, attaining that uh, that that capital and that property, as opposed to uh, a consolidation of wealth, which is you know you look at the income inequality, and you can certainly see in the language of the democratic socialists today, got to go after the rich, right? Tax the rich. We got to go after the rich. Punish the rich. Seventy percent uh, tax on the rich. That money doesn't get turned around and given to the poor. It it it, it might. It, you know, pennies on the dollar might filter through the system and get to the poor, but uh, a lot of that money is going to be taken in and spent by the government on programs that the poor will never actually benefit from. Uh, instead, a lot of middle middle class bureaucrats are going to uh, uh, you know reap the benefits of higher taxation on the rich, which I, I don't think is what Max Eastman meant when he talked about the distributive state. The distributive state, it seems, was more aimed at, I mean, honestly, it kind of sounds like what he's talking about is populism, right? A capitalism that is geared towards the, uh, the, the bulk of the workers as opposed to uh, the CEOs. And 
again, I don't know how conservative a position that is. Uh, certainly compared to collectivism, it would be a, 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 a conservative position. Um, but, you know, I think we're going to see play out during the Democratic primary. You're going to see the more um, doctrinaire socialists like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who's obviously not running for president, but uh, is going to be a stalking horse for any candidate uh, in the race. Uh, compare that to, you know, the position that Elizabeth Warren is trying to stake out, which is, I, I love capitalism. We just got to rein it in. We got to regulate it. Uh, I don't know if I don't know if Elizabeth Warren's rhetoric actually is going to really succeed on the left right now because I think they're in a much more uh, revolutionary mindset. But um, it, you know, it, it it strikes me that what Max Eastman was talking about in terms of that uh, distributive state is something that um, a, a President Trump could have talked about in uh, 2016. Ross Perot could have talked about it back uh, in the 1990s. And you may see somebody like an Elizabeth Warren try to uh, at least use some of that language, if not the idea itself, of a, a quote-unquote uh, more fair and equitable capitalism uh, as opposed to uh, outright socialism there in uh, 2020. So there you go. Reflections on the failure of socialism. Max Eastman uh, writing 1955. Devin Adair is the publishing house if you want to try to find a copy online. It's not an incredibly long book. It is a book that, for me anyway, every chapter I want to stop and think about it. We only went through about four of the uh, seven or eight chapters, uh, so there is much more. But uh, I, I think we've spent enough time talking about the failures of socialism. So in the next edition of Past Tense Current Events, we're going to have a brand new book to take a look at. I haven't decided which one yet. I'm narrowing it down between probably three or four different ones, but uh, they're all pretty interesting in their own right. So stay tuned for that. And in the meantime, thank you so much for uh, indulging my inner book nerd and my history geek and hopefully helping you get your history geek and your book nerd on as well. And we'll uh, talk to you soon here on Blaze Podcast Network. 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network. 